lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm back. Did you miss me? Of course you did. I missed you, too. Uh, We're going to have a great show tonight. I have a special guest, um, Dr. Professor Stan Goldberg, who I'll call Stan, so he won't call me Rabbi. Uh, I want to read you uh, about him because you need to know. He's a professor emeritus of communicative disorders at San Francisco State University and author of the new book, Loving, Supporting, and Caring for the Cancer Patient, which just came out this past October 2016. Uh, He is a prolific, award-winning writer, editorial consultant, and recognized expert in the area of cancer support, end-of-life issues, caregiving, chronic illnesses, age, and change, aging and change with more than 300 publications, presentations, workshops, and interviews. He garnered 22 national and international awards for his writing. Um, Professor Goldberg was a bedside volunteer at the internationally renowned Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco, as well as Hospice by the Bay, George Mark Children's House and Pathways, Home Health, and Hospice. Stan, good evening. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me on, Mel. I appreciate it. It's great to have you on. I just want to, before we start, you were you worked at the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco, right? That's what it says. Yeah, I was there for four years as a bedside hospice volunteer. When did you leave? Uh, you know, I, it probably was at least ten years ago. Uh, my All right, so you wouldn't know... There was a wonderful article in the New York Times this past Sunday about a kid who was at a, a student at Princeton University, where I was also a student. Uh, no, I was the rabbi in the in the synagogue in Princeton. And at 4 a.m. one morning, he and two of his buddies came to a railroad tracks with a high fence. They decided they were going to climb the fence. The electricity went on. Boom. And the end of the story is he had to have two legs amputated and his arm um, was in shambles. And now he's riding a motorcycle that was specially trained for him. And it talks about his time. That's BJ. That hospice. Yeah. And how wonderful they were to him and how compassionate and how... They wouldn't let him get away with anything, and he loved it there. Yeah. He assumed the leadership of uh, Zen Hospice when they were in, in turmoil. And ah, he's done okay. a marvelous job, and he still is the, the director there. Really? So, okay, I'll have to call him. Maybe he'll get to me next week. Who knows? So, um, my listeners, I am looking at at Stan's book, 
again, called Loving, Supporting, and Caring for the Cancer Patient, a guide to communication, compassion, and courage. Now, I know the truth, and the truth is that many of you are dealing with cancer, either yourselves or loved ones in your family. I know that, because I know that. Because I just, I just know that. And it's tough. And it's really hard. And so, um, Stan has written this wonderful book, which tells you how to deal with it. And the reason he knows is because, well, you tell him, Stan, how come, tell him the beginning of this book, why you wrote this book. Well, about 20 years ago, uh, a good friend of mine called me, and she said that she had stage 4 breast cancer. Um, And I said what I think most people say when when they hear those kind of news, and that was, I'm so sorry to hear that. And following that, I thought, well, you know, as, as compassionate as those words were, there was nothing that was attached to it that could be useful to her. And, and I struggled with that for a while. And about 10 years later, um, it was my turn. And I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And when I informed people of that, they, they said to me the exact same words that I used with my friend, which is, I'm so sorry to hear that. And I realized that you know, we really hadn't progressed that much uh, on how to interact with people who have cancer. And shortly after that, I became uh, the hospice volunteer. And as I cared for people over the, the next eight years, I started accumulating many stories people had about how their friends reacted when they told them they had cancer. And I realized that in the interactions I had and the insights that people provided me, um, I really possessed an enormous amount of information that I thought needed to be shared. And that was the genesis of the book. And so in the book, you know, it not only talks about the compassion of things that those of us who are living with cancer need, but also how to convert that compassion into things that are practical. So in there, there's over 260 very specific things that people can do to help those of us who are coping with cancer. And it is those tips that are the, that make the price of the book the price of the book. They are wonderful tips because they're down to earth. You're not condescending. You're not talking like a scientist, even though you are one. And I, I love those tips. I love them. I just love them. This book is going to my bookshelf in my synagogue study, and uh, it's going to get used. I may even have to buy a copy. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> well, thank you. I, I really appreciate enjoyed that. those tips because they're easy to understand, and they're profound in their simplicity and, and suggesting to people what to do. I agree with you 100%. That is... And I've said on the show for the last year, when there's a loss, no matter what kind of loss it is, um, people don't know what to say because their parents didn't tell them, teach them what to say because society 
doesn't talk about what to say when there's a loss. And so people make up stupid things to say that they say because they think they're helping, but they're hurting instead. So, you know, I'm so sorry to hear. Uh, On TV now, you know, the standard is I'm so sorry for your loss. Okay, I get that. Because uh, it's a cop, and and you know, you, I mean, what's what the cop doesn't know a person, and so you understand. But I always say, like you, don't just say something that has no takeaway. It's got to be a takeaway. You got to be able to do something. That's what I found. That I, I, from reading the parts of your book that I read, I'm sure you found the same thing. Oh, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, for, for me, it, it's a given that most people are compassionate. Um, it's also a given that most people don't know how to convert that compassion to things that are helpful when it comes to issues they're afraid of. And some of those issues, you know, are involve cancer, other forms of chronic illness, and death. So um, it becomes, I thought it, it would make that journey that they're going to take with someone who's coping with cancer easier. Right. Uh, well, cancer, so I, I can't speak for anybody that has cancer. My mother died of lung cancer, and I know why, and you know why, because she smoked too damn much, and so she died in her 50s. But I was younger, and I didn't really understand. You know, and at that time, you make a very interesting point that now, today, most cancer patients are treated at home, which which means that you got to have family members at home with them because the hospital nurses aren't there with them. And I remember when my mother died, she was in the hospital the whole time. till the very last day of her life, she was in the hospital and she was being cared for by, I guess they were okay. I don't know. I mean, she died anyway, so, and I'm a fatalist about this stuff. I figure when the good Lord wants me, the good Lord's going to take me. But it's all very interesting, the changes in the in the cancer care. And so, okay, you have been um, um, in the hospital and you've been at home, correct? Yes. For your treatment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Most and of at home. You yeah, prefer at home, I'm sure. Yeah, the, the time in the hospital it was basically uh, for the uh, prostate operation. Other than that, I've, I've been at home. And, and that was, again, that was 13 years ago. But you bring up an important point that uh, looking at, at the advances in, in cancer uh, research and treatment, you know, it's a, it's a dual-edged sword. On one hand, we're living longer because of modern science, but at the same time, what that does, it poses extra problems on people who have to care for us for a longer period of time. Oh, yeah, that's it. I will never say it's worse for them than it is for you, but it's hard because, you know, I mean, people come and they spend the whole day at home holding your hand, getting your meds, doing whatever they got to do, helping you go to the bathroom, whatever they're supposed to do, 
and they go home and they're exhausted, and uh, who knows what they accomplished. Yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, people think about cancer as something that only affects the person with it. It's really a community event. You know, it affects yeah. everybody. I remember when she died, our family was devastated. And it was very difficult to even talk about it. So we're going to take a break here, and we'll be right back. Don't go away, anybody. We'll be right back. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi everyone, Rabbi Mel back with you. I am here tonight with uh, Dr. Stan Goldberg, and he wrote this wonderful book called Loving, Supporting, and Caring for the Cancer Patient, A Guide to Communication, Compassion, and Courage. And we've been talking about some of the changes in medical care um, with cancer patients, and I shared with him that when my mother of blessed memory died, when she was in the hospital, uh, all the care was given her in the hospital by the hospital staff. They took care of her, they gave her meds, they bathed her, they everything. But now you go home, which I think is much better because it's home. They don't call it home for nothing. It's familiar to you, and but the problem is, as Stan says, 
that cancer becomes a family affair now. That once you're at home, you've got to be with members of your family or friends. And that's, that's, that's not easy. That's not easy at all. Um, Stan, do you think that cancer patients, I mean, I think they do, but you've been there, um, feel like even if the care is the same, that it, because it's more personal and more family-oriented, that it, it uh, strengthens them and makes them feel a little bit better than if they were in the hospital? Well, it, you know, there was an interesting study done a number of years ago. Uh, it was a study done in Canada, and it, it compared um, the uh, length of uh, the, the increased amount of time cancer patients lived, comparing them from being in the hospital to being home. And they found that there was a significant difference. Cancer patients that uh, are actually, these, these were all terminally ill patients who went into a hospice lived longer than those with the terminal diagnosis that stayed in a hospital. So um, what I've found is that the more familiar and comfortable the setting is for someone who is living with cancer, um, not only is it easier for them, but it's easier for the family. You know, adjustments can be made at home. And I think that with, uh, with the, the way the, the economics of health care is going, uh, that there will be more people that will be sent home quicker uh, who are living with cancer. Which um, makes their care better, keeps them alive longer, and is cheaper. And so it saves all of us, you and me, some, some money because we don't have to pay the outrageous medical fees and charges and all that. Well, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure it does. But what I've always looked at is the spiritual benefits of, uh, of being surrounded by family members as opposed to being in a hospital. You know, most hospitals are, are fairly sterile. <clears throat> they, they have no character and I think uh, obviously because of, of health concerns they have to uh, be immaculate in terms of, of, of not having too much there that could gather germs um, but at home you know the, the person who is living with cancer is dealing with losses uh, many of the things that they enjoy doing their entire life they can't do anymore many of the uh, the interests they had are, have now been curtailed and when someone is in a home environment, uh, they can be nurtured much better by family members there than they can in a hospital. Right. When you um, were at your lowest, when you were at your worst, was the cancer painful or was it controlled by pain meds? Well, I, I was very lucky. Um, my can't, the only thing painful for me was the actual operation and the, re, the three-month recovery after that. Uh, following that, there really was no pain associated with my surgery. Uh, so I, I was fortunate, but um, I've counseled many patients uh, whose cancer was either acute or progressive, and they did have a significant amount of pain. And what was interesting was that 
anyone who has suffered intense pain has a very different view of it than someone who has only observed it. You know, when we're looking at, at someone who is in pain, uh, we, think, we think about the definite beginning and end points to the, to the pain. There's a certain time when, can't, when the, the pain begins and, and a certain time when it ends. And actually, someone who has acute pain doesn't quite view it that way. For them, pain has really porous boundaries. I'll give you a very good example. Um, right after my operation, and I was in bed, and as long as I stayed immobile, I was fine. There was no pain. But I knew that I'd eventually have to get up and go to the bathroom. And just that thought, knowing that I would have to rise up, endure pain, sit down on the toilet, uh, eventually get up and back again, was enough to extend the whole notion of pain for quite a while. So, you know, what, what cancer patients uh, find is that for them, you know, pain is amorphous. It really extends over a long period of time. And I think those who are caring for us, um, you know, can serve us better if they have that understanding. So pain does not have a beginning and end point. It just travels throughout the day. And when I'm caring for my mother at home and she's in pain and I can't do anything about it, and she's moaning and crying and screaming, all I want her to do is be quiet. Because that's what we want people to do. We want the pain to come to an end. But it's, it's as much about us as it is about them, I'm afraid. Yeah, I, I think that one of the hardest things to do for a loved one is to, is to witness someone we care about in pain that can't be controlled. And there's a sense of frustration that I can't do anything to help. And in fact, you can. You know, what can be done is, uh, is just to, to witness what they're going through. And sometimes that's all we can do. Just to, to literally and figuratively hold someone's hand while they are in, in incredible pain not only benefits that person who is experiencing the pain, but it benefits the person who is offering uh, that silent help. Let me ask you a question. How did you end up with the doctor who found out that you had cancer? Well, I I had, um, you know, I was going in for regular prostate exams, uh, you know, PSA tests for a number of years. And this was from the time I was 50. Uh, and, you know, every time I went into PSA gradually, you know, rose. And, and there was that, that time where, you know, I knew that, that eventually I might uh, have cancer. Uh, and I kept wishing that it would not have happened. So there was that trepidation, you know, to go to the doctor. And when it finally was biopsied, uh, as cancerous, um, I got the information over the phone. He, you know, he called and, and uh, essentially told me that I had a form of prostate cancer that was aggressive, that we needed to do something quickly about it, and he wasn't sure about the prognosis. So I had to deal with all of that over the phone, which was very difficult. It probably would have been just as hard if he didn't tell me any information and just said, why don't you come on in? So, so you're lucky at least a human being told you, not a robot. 
I'm sorry, I, I couldn't hear you. You're lucky that a human being gave you the information and not a robot, you know, not one of these answering machines that supposed to listen and hear and talk and all that. Yeah, but you know, I'm I'm not sure it it really makes that much difference. I mean, everybody who I've talked to who's had a diagnosis of cancer had the same reaction when they heard the words. And you know, it did make a difference if they if they read it in a lab report or if they were in a doctor's office or over the phone. There is this absolute shock that occurs that really blocks out everything. I mean, we, we, we think of, of, you know, we hear the words cancer and we think the worst. And most people go into this emotional shock uh, in which it's very difficult for them to, to function, to hear things. And it was the same with me. And it was the same actually when I told my wife and adult children that I had cancer. They were in as much shock as I was. So it's, it's you know, an emotional shock hearing that one has cancer that quite often makes it difficult for the person who was diagnosed to function adequately at that time. Right. I'm, I'm glad you said that. You've got some great stories in your book, and I'm going to read one with your permission. Or Absolutely. <laughs> sure. There's a story of a moaning dog lying on the front porch of a house. Next to the dog sits an old man in a rocking chair whittling a piece of wood. A stranger comes by and is confused by the scene. He walks up to the porch to see what the problem is with the dog. Howdy, neighbor, he says to the old man. Howdy, the old man responds, not looking up from the piece of wood he's carving. I was wondering why your hound is yelping. He's lying on a nail, the old man says, taking a puff on his corncob pipe. How long has he been doing that, the stranger asks. Oh, I reckon about eight hours. Eight hours, the shocked stranger says, yep. Well, why doesn't he get off of it? The old man stops whittling, takes another puff on his pipe, and strokes his beard as if in deep thought. He looks up at the stranger and says, I guess he forgot what it's like not lying on it. You tell that story in the context of most people have inertia, like rocks. Rocks don't move by themselves, and you say most people don't either. You are smarter than the average bear, and so you kept going in for prostate and PSA tests. So you were not, uh, you were not plagued by inertia. You um, continued even before you got, you heard the word cancer. You had a suspicion, I think, that it was coming because the numbers kept going up. Am I right? Yeah, I, I you know, I did. I, I, you know, assumed that eventually I would not get good news. But you know, the the whole notion of, of inertia is very interesting. It's a very important point to understand, uh, even after the diagnosis. You know, what even though I was very aware of what was going on, I think in my body. Um, from the time I had that diagnosis, I knew that my life was going to change. And, you know, I, in some ways, uh, paralleled the, the agony of that dog. I yeah. laid in bed for three months um, and watched reruns of old movies and, and TV sitcoms uh, until I got to the point of realizing that 
that form of inertia wasn't going to do me any good. And I needed to get up and do something to make whatever time I had left as meaningful as it could be. And that was 13 years ago, and I've, I've tried to do that you know, every day of my life thinking, I really don't know how much longer I have to live. And do I really want to spend whatever time I have left doing meaningless things? And the answer obviously has been no. I, I want my life to be as full as it can be for as long as I have left. I agree with you. Um, my listeners, I want you to know that when I called Stan yesterday to introduce myself, he was, uh, he said I gave him a good excuse to take a break. He was practicing the flute. Now, the flute's a great instrument, but, you know, I would suspect that most guys with cancer don't do things like that. They just sort of fade away, which, of course makes it all just worse. Yeah, well, you, know, what, you, what you didn't do that. Yeah. You, that's not who you are. Well, what, ha- what happened with me is, um, you know, th- there were certain things in my life that I thought were important for my identity. And, and one of the things that, uh, that was v- critically important to me was fly fishing in the wilderness by myself. That, that was, that was an, an important part of who I was. After I was diagnosed with cancer, I couldn't do that anymore. And um, I was really, you know, very upset that that was a part of my life that was gone. So what I tried to do was think about how, what, what I could recreate. And I, I came to an understanding that often one of the problems we have when we lose something is we try to, to find an exact replica of it. And, and I realized that just wasn't going to work. And I, I came to the realization that what I missed was not necessarily standing in the middle of a stream in the wilderness, but rather the emotion that that experience gave me. And for me, that was serenity. So I started a, a, a journey um, trying to find what could create that same emotion. And I found it in crafting and playing flutes. So, you know, I mean, playing the flute is not the same as, as staying, you know, standing in the Madison River fishing for trophy-sized trout. But it does provide me with that serenity. And I think that that's one of the things that people who are coping with cancer need to think about. Instead of focusing on what they've lost because of the illness, is to think about what was the emotion they can no longer feel and then find something that could replicate that emotion. So it was, it was being alone, not especially the fly fishing. Yes, absolutely. And you and you found something that took the place. Okay. Um, oh, I got so much to talk to you about. Oh my goodness. Um, all right. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah, we got thirty seconds till the next break, so I'm going to wait. In the next break, I want to read another story that you put in here, and then I want to ask you some what we call deep questions that only rabbis get to ask. But we'll do that when we come back. Don't go away, anybody. We'll be right back. 
us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Moving forward can be difficult to do sometimes. There is always something going on. Many times, nobody else knows exactly what you're going through. If you are experiencing pain or loss, even something that is unexplained that is missing in your life, you'll want to tune into Go For It with host Joe Hausman. Show and her guests will show you laughter and love. Sometimes you just need something a little positive in your week. Make that spot Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hello, everybody. Rabbi Mel is back. I'm back with my new friend and guest, uh, Dr. Stan Goldberg, who wrote a wonderful book after he got prostate cancer. He wrote a book called Loving, Supporting, and Caring for the Cancer Patient, A Guide to Communication, Compassion, and Courage. you got to buy this book. And right before the end of the, of the show, you know, he'll talk more about that. I want to read another story, Stan, because I just, you put in some great stories and they illustrate, this one illustrates how when you got cancer, your mind plays tricks with you sometimes and you're not, you're not saying what you think you're saying. So, um, I had just finished a three hour lecture following a sleepless night when my graduate assistant came into the office. Stan, can I talk to you about your lecture today? Sure, what questions do you have? I said as she closed the door behind her. I don't have any questions, but I need to tell you that she had difficulty continuing. We had established a close student-mentor relationship where she was comfortable discussing both academic and personal problems with me. 
Whatever this was, I knew it was beyond the scope of previous conversations. Did I say anything factually wrong in my lecture, you asked her? No. Did I say anything insensitive or insult anyone? No. Then what? The lecture was fine, she said. She paused before taking a deep breath. But it was the one you gave last week. You mean I covered some of the same topics, you asked? No, it was the same lecture, almost word for word. After a pause, she said, even the same jokes. Stan, talk about them, if you would. Well, I, you know, besides having cancer, I have, I have something called Meniere's syndrome, which is a, an imbalanced disorder that results in tinnitus or ringing in the ears. And actually, I had that before the cancer. Um, one of the problems I had with it in the past was uh, an inability to sleep. So quite often, I would come in for my, my three-hour lecture uh, two hours of sleep the night before, sometimes no sleep at all. And um, I, I was having difficulty uh, acknowledging that, that I had changed. Uh, so, it, you know, and I found that same type of thing happens with people with cancer. Um, when we have cancer, we lose certain abilities. And often those abilities that we lose were ones that defined who we were. And it's that reluctance to give that up that just causes enormous problems for yourself and everyone else around you. In my case, you know, with, uh, with a lecture, I eventually decided to retire. Actually, it was at the end of that semester because I realized I really wasn't who I had been prior to the onset of the Meniere's. And, you know, it wasn't fair to me. It wasn't fair to my students. Uh, and the, the exact kinds of situations occur also with cancer. Uh, when I had, um, after my operation, I, I always thought of myself as a fairly independent person. I really didn't rely on anybody. Well, after the cancer surgery, um, I, was fair, I was pretty weak. And um, I refused to take help from anybody, even on moving objects or, or moving things back and forth. Um, and it was causing my family great consternation because they knew that I needed help and I refused to accept it. And that refusal had to do with me wanting to hold on to an image of who I was, but, you know, that image was gone. And I think many people with cancer go through the same process. They look at who they used to be, and they want to hold on to that image, even if it no longer makes sense. So letting go uh, is something that I've found critical uh, for people who are living with cancer and are facing some difficult times. Okay. Um, thank you for that. Um, I was moved by the story, and I and I understand what you're saying. You know, it's it's sort of like the the Israelites who were walking forty years in a desert, and they kept complaining that they wanted to go back to Egypt. And I always ask the question, like the ancient rabbis, why would slaves? Why would people want to go back to slavery? And the answer is because they knew the situation in Egypt. They knew the way, they knew it the way it was, and they didn't want to change it. They didn't want 
anything in their lives to change. So I always say you wander with any loss in two directions simultaneously. You know you have to wander forward, and at the same time you want to go back to the way it was. You want to be the person you had before you got cancer. I wanted to be the same person I was before my parents died, etc., etc., because we knew this, this situation. Even if daddy's got Alzheimer's, he's still standing up there. And you can still hug him, and he can still hug you, and, and at least you knew the deal there. Uh, but when, when your life changes, it's, it's different. Okay, I got another question I got to ask. Um, I'm looking at the very end of your book, and I want to read you something. Then I want to ask you a question about, about what I'm going to read. The process of change is ongoing with the resurrection of, a, of an emotion taking months or years. Instead of looking at final goals, ask the questions. Am I closer to my goal today than I was last year? Am I enjoying the journey? Even though you didn't accomplish everything you set out to change, life continues to evolve, as does the resurrection of emotions. The new you is someone in transition. You will always be evolving. So my question, Stan, is when you wrote those final words, what effect did that have on you? How did you feel knowing that you had written this book for yourself as well as for others? Well, you know, it's, it's the same feeling I have whenever I finish uh, any kind of major writing project. You know, I think I've, I've tapped into something that is useful, but I never really know until it's done and, you know, in this case, and that it's, it's published. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. As I was listening to you read that story, I kept thinking, God, that sounds so good. I wonder who wrote that. <laughs> and I've, 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 Stand, got losing it again. <laughs> in, I've, I've got to the point now in my life that when, when I, I have a thought that I think is good or important, I've, I've come to realize it probably isn't mine. That, that probably the best things that we know, the best things that we say, are probably universal and eternal. So when, whenever I write something that is beneficial to someone, or someone says, this made a difference for me, um, I think, okay, this is probably one of those universal ideas. I don't take credit for them. And now, if something is a really bad idea, I take full credit for that. <laughs> Stan, I'm shocked. <laughs> you know well, what the I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's not that I'm being falsely, uh, you, know, you know, humble about it. Uh, I, I attended a, a workshop many years ago, and this was um, a Tibetan monk named Rebar Rinpoche. And, and as he was lecturing, I would write down these, you know, what he was saying, and there were these gems, these unbelievably you know, incredible thoughts about life and death. And I went back to my room afterwards, and I said, you know, I've, these sound familiar. And I hadn't, you know, read at that time, you know, too many of the, the Buddhist texts, but these really sound familiar. And I realized that most of these ideas that I, you know, I had incorporated these ideas 
in a lot of my writing. And I thought, you know, how terrible I'm actually plagiarizing from the Buddha. And I realized that, that there are probably many ideas that just transcend time. Uh, so whenever I look back on the things that I've written and, you know, that, that people have commented on that made a difference to them, I look at them and I realize, yeah, this is probably, you know, one of those eternal thoughts that I've been fortunate enough just to pick up, you know, sort of to channel into me. So I, I, I don't take credit. You know, I, I think what, what I do is I'm probably good at, at putting modern clothes on, on ancient wisdom. That's a good way to look at it. I'll share with you something um, from the Talmud, which was written between the years 200 and 500, where they talk about Jewish law. And one of the things they say is that somebody who steals from somebody who steals is not guilty. Because the Buddhist, he didn't eat. Maybe he made it up, but maybe he didn't. Maybe he got it from someplace else. I mean, how many original thoughts are there these days? No, I'm not, I, I agree. I, I think you could, if you went into any great uh, religious or philosophical tradition, pulled out their important points, you could probably find them, you know, throughout the history of man, just said a little bit differently. But they're always there. The question is, how do they get there? I, I agree with you. I, you know... You are a wonderful guy, and you're a wonderful writer, and and I can imagine the good work. You know, when you were in the hospice, hospices that you were in, I can imagine that your being there was so comforting and so loving and so compassionate, and I know that that's not always easy to do. Well, I no, do it. it. It's, Every it's, clergyman exactly. does it, and it ain't easy. It, it isn't, but it, I think it's a lot easier than many people think. Um, whenever I left the bedside of someone that I was caring for, I thanked them for the opportunity to serve them. Right. And they didn't quite, they never understood that because right. you know, their response is, you're here helping me. How am I helping you? And I think the, the important thing about hospice is, and you can talk to anybody who's been a volunteer there, and they all will say the exact same thing. I got more out of it than I think I gave. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's such an incredible experience that your life gets transformed from being a hospice volunteer. That's right. I don't know if I would have the patience to be a hospice volunteer. I just don't know that. But... I, I mean, enough hospices, enough times, you know, that, that uh, I understand that perfectly. Okay, we got two minutes left. Unfortunately, I could talk to you for another hour, but I want to thank you. Now, if somebody wants to get a hold of this book, they just have to go to Amazon, right? Yeah, Amazon or any of the online booksellers have that book, along with there's two other books I wrote that are kind of, you know, sequels, or they were a sequel to this. And the last one I wrote at, prior to this was called Leaning into Sharp Points, Practical Guidance and Nursing Support for Caregivers. And the one before that is called Lessons for the Living, and that's stories of forgiveness, gratitude, and courage at the end of life. And that, that was the memoir of my eight years in hospice. And on my website, which is Stan Goldberg Writer, W-R-I-T-E-R, 
there's over 200 articles there uh, dealing with issues of, of cancer, acute illness, dementia, Alzheimer's, aging, etc. And all of those are free, and they're all they can be downloaded and shared. And if anybody has a comment about any of the articles, I answer. You know, I provide answers to them. Good, good. Okay, my friends, you've heard the man. I want you to go out and buy the book. One of them, two of them, three of them. Um, if you wanna, if you have anything to say to me, send me an email at Rabbi Mel at griefok.com, and I will respond as well. So, Stan, I want to thank you, and I hope that we'll have another chance to get together on this show, because I, I would love to hear some more wisdom, and I only wish that you had been a rabbi, because you should be. Because maybe maybe in a past life. <laughs> the wonderful wisdom that you have. I love it. Thanks for coming. Good night, everybody. See you next week. again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week. Do you ever look at people and wonder how they seem to have it? They have confidence. They live their best lives. They are magnetic. This can be you. Magnetize your presence. The art of creating charisma will help. Host Sheila Alley and her guests get you into the right frame of mind to get the most from your life and live joyfully. What will you do with your new life? Tune in every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time for Magnetize Your Presence on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. When you see someone, are you seeing the person or the perception? We see labels such as fat, thin, black, white, rich, poor, but we don't always see the true identity. Listen for New Dimensions with Reverend Nicholas Barrett. On this program, we'll embrace the breaking down of societal paradigms, our norms, and acceptance of our false selves. You can find your identity the way that God intended. Forget all the labels that you think you see. Tune in every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions, some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Many people believe it's a man's place to stay strong no matter what. It's considered weak if you break. Men deal with all kinds of issues, insecurity, fears, and struggles, but there has been no place to turn to until now. Listen for Fundamentals with host Carl Bobo. We provide the support that men need and the guidance they seek. It's an open and honest forum featuring the topics you want to hear about with the answers that you seek. Listen live Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific and 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. It's time to do all of those things that you always said you'd do in your life. What's stopping you? Is it other people, your environment, fear? What could give you a push? 
Tune in to Raising the Bar with Amy Bredo. Our show is all about taking risks and turning them into positives and personal gain. We'll help your inner voice speak up and get you out of that comfort zone. Raising the Bar can be heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Get inspired, encouraged, and connected on our lively, award-winning Healthy Living Power Hour. Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany, live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to the Power Party for positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio. Visit StarStyleRadio.com. Show the world your smile, be the star you are. If you are ready to be inspired, energized, and edutained, you've come to the right place with our two life-changing programs at BeTheStarYouAreRadio.com. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's our lifestyle show, Star Style, Be The Star You Are, with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. On Tuesdays at noon Pacific, teens talk and the world listens on Express Yourself Teen Radio on Voice America Kids. Come play with us at BeTheStarYouAreRadio.com. The Compassionate Life is about just that. There are so many human beings who have made a name for themselves by being humanitarians. They have become individuals who are known for being selfless, kind, and compassionate. Host Dr. Brittany King is also one of these humanitarians. Each week, she shares stories of kindness that she has experienced throughout the world, both as a contributor and recipient of these acts of love and kindness. Listen every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning into the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Do you or somebody you love have a struggle with abuse? You don't need to be a slave to your abuse anymore. Listen for Beyond Abuse, Beyond Therapy, Beyond Anything with Dr. Lisa Cooney. Dr. Lisa overcame struggles in her own life. Two decades of sexual, emotional, and physical abuse nearly took their toll. In her 20s, she turned her life around and set upon a path to help others. She can help you find the key to take control of your life, too. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. How do you define work? Is it that mundane Monday through Friday place that seems to be sucking a third of your life out of you? Or have you made it a place of personal fulfillment, achievement, and purpose? If you are looking to make your work life the latter, tune in to Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. 
There are all kinds of inspiring work-life stories told by people who have made work something to look forward to every day. Working on Purpose can be heard every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. Are you in your own driver's seat? Tune in to a program that will get you there based on what others have managed to do through challenges in their lives and how they persevered. Tune in to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. On our show, we use real issues and experts to help you reclaim your life. Danielle and her guests are here to steer you in the right direction. Make sure that you are here every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to harness your power.